0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, August 20th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. When one advances a view of social justice, what does that view imply? Randy Barnett at Cato University argued that a typical view of social justice will necessitate a large, intrusive government to assure that a given, perhaps even desirable distribution of resources is maintained. That is, he argues, unlibertarian. So, libertarians are often portrayed as radicals, and in a sense, this is accurate. The three senses of radical could each be said to characterize libertarianism. Here's the first sense, quote, relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something, far-reaching or thorough. Second meaning of radical. Characterized by a departure from tradition, innovative or progressive. Third meaning of radical relating to the root of something. Libertarians do make claims about the fundamental nature of things and strive to be thorough in the application of their principles. Libertarian policies are often a departure from tradition. Libertarians do strive to go to the root of how society should be structured and they claim that root to be liberty. However, if by radical you mean extreme, then libertarianism is the opposite of radical. In this talk, I'm going to explain why libertarianism today is actually a far more modest political approach than that of either the social justice crowd on the left or the legal moralists on the right. Indeed, the more radical a libertarian you are, the more modest a position you advocate as compared with these two extremes. So let me begin by defining what I mean by social justice and legal moralism. Now the social justice crowd. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the term social justice. It's very, very prevalent in academia. It's really, really prevalent at Georgetown. We are committed to social justice as part of the Catholic uh, tradition. We are told, um, and I mean that's that's, how, that's the law school's uh, interpretation of the Catholic tradition. Um, uh, but those of you, have, when you hear the term social justice, if you hear somebody use the term social justice and you haven't, you don't know anything more about that person. That person's. lefty okay so that's just this isn't are you that just they have self identified they may not know what they're talking about but they have identified what circles they run in all right so I'm going to define social justice um, in the way that I have come to understand it being exposed to it so often as I am so social justice crowd holds some version of the view that everyone is entitled to some quantum of stuff And if they don't have whatever it is that a particular social justice theorist thinks they ought to have, we need a coercive government with the power to take from those who have this stuff and give it to those who don't. Now, this sometimes also entails that no one should have any or too much more stuff than anyone else. But whether the standard is absolute or comparative, social justice consists of everyone having whatever they are supposed to have, according to the advocate of social justice. That's it, it's not really much more complicated than that. Now, there are at least three fundamental problems associated with this position. The first is that there is no single and salient answer to what everyone is supposed to have. Almost everyone who advocates for social justice has either a different view of this, or more commonly in my experience, no firm view they are willing to articulate. For example, try asking someone who says that the rich are not paying their fair fair share of taxes and then you ask them, okay, well, what is the fair share? You will either get a blank look or a single word answer, and that answer is? More. more. yes, that answer is more. Right. Whatever the, well, whatever the um, well-off are now paying, they should be paying more. more, right. Whatever the less well-off have, they should have more. more. Right. How much more? Not saying. Not saying how much more. Just more. Just more. Now this lack of specificity makes crafting actual policies extremely unstable. There is no core position around which any political consensus can be formed. There is no identifiable limit beyond which the policy of redistribution can be deemed unjust. In the absence of a consensus, whatever policy may actually be implemented will be politically unstable. Only the subgroup who favors the prevailing plan will be satisfied that social justice is being done. No matter how much redistribution of income or wealth is adopted, there will always be cries for more or different forms, which will greatly undermine the security of everyone's possessions and the ability to plan. And then there are the many who will persist like us in in objecting to using force to achieve social justice. Now, this is just not a recipe for peaceful, a peaceful and contented society. A second problem is that achieving any particular pattern of distribution will require highly intrusive government administrative mechanisms. Some subset of society will need to be given special powers to collect the information on everyone's wealth or income. I mean, it depends on if you're a wealth social justice person or an income social justice person. Those right; Those are two different things, by the way. But you're gonna have to have some mechanism that's gonna collect the information on everybody's wealth or income or both. And that's not some accidental occurrence that can somehow be avoided. It's absolutely necessary to know from whom to take the wealth and to whom to give it according to the approved pattern of social justice. Collecting this information will necessarily be privacy-invasive, and the existence of a database with such information can lead to the intimidation of dissidents. Third, and finally, a problem that was identified most prominently by Robert Nozick, a wonderful guy who I was told last night is still the object of sexual uh, fantasies by young graduate students everywhere, uh, whatever level of redistribution is adopted will require the continual use of force achieve and maintain over time. The natural outcome of liberty will inevitably destroy whatever pattern of holdings is adopted as the the societally just one. In addition to collecting the relevant information to discover how actual holdings differ from this pattern, some subset of persons will need to be empowered to use force to continually adjust holdings so that they may conform. These three fundamental problems lead to the following mega-problem with social justice policies. Any institution powerful enough to gather this information and enforce this pattern will be highly intrusive and enormously dangerous. Not only will it have the exceptional power to violate the background rights that libertarians advocate as the prerequisite for pursuing happiness in a social context, it will have the power to deviate from the pattern of any particular so- that any particular social justice advocate advocates. These institutions of coercion may adopt a different version of social justice or other ends entirely that will violate the conception of social justice favored by any given proponent. And given that there is no uniquely salient pattern of distribution, the highly contested nature of social justice makes the potential for abuse even greater. That one cannot prove one's conception is is the right one makes the perpetual struggle to control the institutions of coercion inevitable unless dissenters are somehow suppressed or eliminated, which historically is what happens to dissidents in societies that are committed to social justice. It's it's not enough, therefore, for social justice advocates to identify a uniquely salient pattern of holdings as the just one though this is essential, they must also identify the structural features of a legal system that can assure that the pattern they think is just and only the just pattern will be adopted, and that the powers required to monitor and perpetuate the just pattern will not be captured and abused to the detriment of social justice. Okay, now let's talk about legal moralism, change our focus a little bit. Legal moralists focused their attention, not on how much stuff each person has, but on how each person ought to act when living his or her life. Each person should behave just the way legal moralists believe he or she should behave or be sanctioned by law. Legal moralists have a comparable set of problems as the social justice theorists. Indeed, we can simply port over much of the above analysis of social justice to legal moralism. Like social justice proponents, legal moralists disagree amongst themselves on the correct set of moral behaviors. Of course, all moralists, all legal moralists would maintain that acts like murder, rape, robbery, and theft, which violate the rights of others, should be banned, a belief they share in common with libertarians. For this reason, to preserve the distinction between libertarianism and legal moralism, it is important to distinguish between justice not social justice, I mean real justice. Justice, which is what I was referring to by, which I was using natural rights theory to elaborate on, on the one hand, which consists of prohibiting wrongful conduct that violates the rights of others, that's justice, and morality or ethics, which evaluates the full gamut of human action to distinguish good from bad conduct. So I think it's very useful to distinguish between right versus wrong conduct. Use that phraseology to talk about uh, uh, rightful behavior and wrongful behavior. That's a matter of justice. That's a matter of rights. And good and bad behavior. That's a matter of ethics. That's a matter of how we should live and treat other people. Now you can use these terms any way you like, but that's a useful way of using appropriate approved moral terms to distinguish between one, right versus wrong, and the other, good versus bad. Now, all libertarians and most everyone else believes that force is justified to prohibit unjust or wrongful behavior, but legal moralists would extend the use of force to reach some or all immoral or unethical conduct as well. But while the consensus that murder, rape, robbery, and theft are wrongful and may be legally prohibited is widespread, indeed it's universal, there is no comparable consensus about how all people ought to act or which moral code should be imposed on a society. But even assuming some uniquely salient moral code were identified, like social justice advocates, legal moralists require a powerful and intrusive set of legal institutions to gather information on how everyone is behaving in public and in private to detect whether they are behaving morally or not. Any institution that's powerful enough to accomplish this would be susceptible to enormous abuse. And this potential for abuse is even greater than it would be if a uniquely Um, salient moral code were capable of being identified so that those who hold power could at least be held to those identifiable aims. Okay. Enough. You get it. However, now, when confronted with these inherent and fundamental problems with their positions, both social justice advocates and legal moralists tend to offer the same response, and it is democracy. We just let people vote, on either the correct pattern of distribution, the correct moral code, or if you're really a moderate, both the distribution and the correct moral code. But this simply avoids the issue. It doesn't solve it. Although majority rule might arrive at some outcome, given the contested nature of both concepts, it is not likely to be a stable outcome as winners must continually fend off the losers. This assumes, of course, that democracy is actually maintained after the initial vote, which is not typically the case in countries pursuing either social justice or legal moralist agendas. It's usually one and done. One election, they win, that's the last election you see, the last fair election you see. More fundamentally, how exactly is majority rule supposed to arrive at the correct answer to either social justice or the morality, uh, or morality by the standard of the view of social justice or morality advocated? How are they supposed to do it? What sorts of arguments about right outcome can political advocates even make? What would a legislative debate about the right distri- distribution or correct morality look like beyond a mere assertion of one's conclusion in the form of one's vote? In short, what exactly makes a majority vote on any given day the right outcome of either a social justice or a legal moralist perspective. It doesn't. It just gives you an outcome, but there's absolutely no connection between that outcome and and the right outcome if you're a social justice theorist or a legal moralist. If there's no assurance that a majority of, of a group of individuals who are denominated legislators or representatives, or a majority of the body of the public voting in a referendum, will vote for the right outcome, then how exactly is democracy the solution? to the problem of the radical indeterminacy of social justice or legal moralist perspectives. Far from being a solution to the problem of arriving at the right conception of social justice or legal, mor- or legal morality, the appeal to democracy either disguises or merely restates the problem. It doesn't solve it. In the end, both social justice and legal moralism assume what we might call and what has been called a God's eye view a God's eye view of how all physical resources in a given society should be allocated or how all persons should behave in their personal and public lives. Indeed, one could easily conclude that social justice proponents and legal moralists are simply substituting a secular government for God to create their own heaven on earth. But this project is simply beyond the capacity of the actual human beings that, must rely, that, that we must rely upon to devise and implement such a scheme. Hypothesizing about the demos does not even seriously address, much less solve the problem. Moreover, because both social justice and legal moralist visions are comprehensive approaches to social arrangements, any preferred position necessarily implies the rejection of all competing positions. To adopt any one pattern of distribution is to reject all all other contending patterns. To adopt any one moral code is to reject all alternative moral codes. Not only do the comprehensive natures of both approaches make them inherently unstable, as those who favor alternative conceptions continue to agitate for their view of, social, of justice or morality, but this very instability has historically engendered highly coercive and often brutal measures to suppress dissent from the prevailing position. Whether enforced brutally or not, however, Every loser of this perpetual struggle must be forced to live their life in a regime he or she takes to be unjust or immoral. The inevitable result of this dynamic is a Hobbesian war of all against all. And just as an aside, if you wanna know another reason why politics are so ugly today, and that is you, you kick as many of these issues up to the national government where it's winner-take-all, as opposed to handle it at the local level where you can actually vote with your feet by going from one state to another, and you're gonna heighten uh, the conflict about who gets to win that winner-take-all battle. That's your Hobbesian war being imposed on us. The recognition of these problems is as old as liberalism itself. Indeed, the origin of classical liberalism and libertarianism can be traced to the devastating consequences of religious wars during which comprehensive religious views fought violently against each other. And why shouldn't contending religions take up arms against their rivals? If eternal salvation is at stake, and salvation requires living in a society in which which others all believe accordingly, why why should not religion be fought over to the death? Nor has this stance been eradicated from modernity. We see it today in the radical Islamist jihad that is gaining steam in a large part of the world, both in its deadliest form and in its drive to adopt Sharia law in democratic societies that is then coercively imposed on believers and oftentimes non-believers alike. The classical liberal solution to the problem of religious wars was religious toleration. The view that matters of conscience were matters of individual choice. Notwithstanding that one's eternal soul might be at stake, these proto-liberals contended that it was better for individuals to be free to choose their religions than to adopt a comprehensive one-religion-for-all policy that led to perpetual and deadly domestic and foreign strife. Those favoring toleration need not and did not deny that one religion was right and the rest were wrong. In other words, they were not religious relativists. Instead, they, they, Instead, they just needed to recognize that, uh, that identifying the one true religion um, was sufficiently contestable as to make the imposition of one religion on all highly unstable and, des- and destructive to social ordering. Even from the point of view of religious truth, while the best outcome might be to have one, one's own true religion imposed on others, the worst outcome was to have another's false religion imposed on you. Everyone's second best outcome was to be free to exercise his or her own religion, which makes this policy the most stable and conducive to social peace. For this reason, rather than have one religion coercively imposed by a monarch, the liberal solution to to religious strife was for each individual to be considered the king or sovereign of his own conscience. Conscience. You're gonna see a theme that I was hitting on yesterday, it's going to come back right now. Everybody gets to be the king or sovereign of their own conscience. Each individual was to live side by side with other individual sovereigns of their conscience. The way monarchs of countries under the the Treaty of Westphalia were supposed to live in peace with their neighboring monarchs and to refrain from forcibly interfering with the internal affairs of other sovereign monarchs. For Westphalian monarchical sovereignty to work, however, the geographical borders within which each monarch was free to decide on his own internal domestic policies without outside interference must be identifiable and established. By the same token, the individual sovereignty entailed by religious toleration requires the identification and establishment of boundaries within which individuals have the jurisdiction to choose how to worship. In sum, the liberal solution to the Hobbesian war of all against all created by, a by, by comprehensive religious claims was not to posit a sovereign monarch or Leviathan to settle on one true religion for all. Indeed, that was the source of religious wars, but instead to shift the conception of sovereignty over religious beliefs and exercises from the monarch to the individual person, with each, each with his own his or her own conscience. Building on this insight, the Lockean jurisdictional solution to the social strife created by the, comp- by, by the comprehensive religious claims, these comprehensive religious claims came gradually to be adopted to handle lesser conflicts over mere moral disagreements. Remember, it's the more extreme important religious disagreement that got handled first then the lesser disagreements got handled second. Just as the jurisdictions of sovereign monarchs is limited to their respective geographical territories, The jurisdiction of sovereign individuals is limited to their bodies and their justly acquired physical possessions. As in international relations, force is used to keep everyone within their boundaries, but so long as they are operating within their respective jurisdictions and not invading the rightful jurisdictions or domains of others, individuals should be free to make their own moral choices. The more decisions are viewed as matters of individual sovereignty, this is important, the more individuals are viewed as, individual decisions are viewed as matters of individual sovereignty, the more libertarian this approach becomes. Indeed, modern libertarianism can be viewed as the push to see how many types of decisions can feasibly be delegated to the realm of individual sovereignty. The debate between libertarians and others, and among libertarians themselves, is precisely how far this process of delegation can be taken. It is inaccurate to characterize this argument for delegation as premised on some atomistic individualism that assumes that each person is an island independent of others in society, any more than did Westphalian monarchical sovereignty Um, assume atomistic nation-states. To the contrary, what is sought are the prerequisite of peaceful social coexistence in a world in which each person's actions are very much likely to affect others. As with contending nation-states, social conflict and interdependence are the issue or the problem to be solved rather than denied by the recognition of individual sovereignty. Now it should now be clear that modern libertarianism merely takes individual sovereignty seriously and tries to push this concept as far as it can feasibly go. For libertarians, as for Locke, private property is the concept that defines the proper jurisdiction of each sovereign person who is sui juris or competent to manage his or her own affairs. And freedom of contract governs the transfers of these property rights from one person to another. Liberty, for a libertarian then, is not the Hobbesian freedom to do whatever one wills. It is the Lockean freedom, to do, to do whatever one wills with what's yours. There is simply no libertarian, libertarianism without jurisdictional limits on freedom of action. The concept of property defines these limits and is what differentiates liberty from license. Libertarianism is distinctive in its attempt to limit coercion to the protection of these jurisdictional boundaries to the greatest extent that is feasible. Forcible interference by some with the liberty that is within the sovereign jurisdictions of others is as offensive to libertarianism as the unprovoked forcible interference of one national sovereign within the boundaries of another is offensive to the prevailing view of international relations. However radical this may sound in the abstract, it is actually a far more modest approach than either social justice or legal moralism. Although the line between mine and thine must be drawn, Doing so is far more practical than specifying um, the morality of the entirety of human action. Although rules and principles governing governing the just acquisition, use, and transfer of property must be identified, this is far more manageable and less divisive and dangerous a task than continually readjusting the distribution of holdings, suppressing the acquisition of property altogether, or identifying a stable principle of fair share. Moreover, because proponents of social justice and legal moralism typically propose superimposing their schemes on top of existing structures of private property and freedom of contract, rather than supplanting them altogether, their stances are necessarily more ambitious than simply limiting legal coercion to the libertarian core that must still be determined on their account. If they're adding to it, it's more complicated, it's more challenging, and it's more radical or more extreme than simply leaving it go. Put another way, no matter how challenging the task of properly defining the proper jurisdictions of individual sovereigns may be, adding considerations of social justice or legal moralism to this this task makes it even more challenging. And in this sense, libertarianism is necessarily more modest than either social justice or legal moralism. Now, what about the social democracies of Western Europe or the now expanding social welfare state in the United States? Don't these political systems combine the individual sovereignty of private property with the redistribution of social justice as well as some degree of legal moralism? Don't these represent the true middle ground, or what was once called the third way, between an unconstrained system of either social justice or legal moralism on the one hand, and the unconstrained liberty of libertarianism on the other? If these types of political arrangements are feasible, Does this not undermine the libertarian objection to social justice, legal moralism, or both? Now, in some ways, I think the answer to this last question is yes. Superimposing a degree of wealth or income distribution, a redistribution or morals legislation on a robust base of private property is infinitely preferable to the radical single-minded pursuit of either social justice or legal moralism. But this response to the case for libertarianism is actually a major concession to libertarianism, rather than a genuine objection. For it concedes that libertarian principles of property provide a necessary baseline upon which some less than complete scheme of redistribution or, re- or moral regulation can be superimposed. Moreover, advocates of social democracy assume the feasibility of this alternative to defining legal coercion to the protection of individual sovereignty. They assume it can be done. But what if such an approach is infeasible? What if superimposing social justice or legal moralism on the individual sovereignty defined by private property and freedom of contract is ultimately unstable? Why might that be? Perhaps institutions with sufficient power to effectuate social justice or to impose morality will inevitably be captured by the more powerful forces in society and put to other ends. Perhaps they will be inevitably used for a purpose that does not conform to the proper conception of social justice or morality. After all, as I've already noted, what realistic assurances have we ever been given that such a power can be limited to whatever theory is being advanced to justify its creation? What happens in a social democracy when 51% of the voters discover it can redistribute. It can vote to redistribute the wealth or impose their moral vision upon the other 49%. Or more likely, what happens when political entrepreneurs um, inspire say 80% of the electorate to to confiscate the income or wealth of the other 20%? When this happens, how will social democracy preserve the individual sovereignty that the third way approach conceded was needed as the baseline? upon which something else was going to be put. What realistic mechanisms are proposed by advocates of the third way to ensure against this outcome? I've been teaching law, and I've been writing about liberty for over 30 years now, and I have yet to hear any such proposal from any of my colleagues. It would be genuinely enlightening to hear proponents of liberal social democracy tell us how it will not eventually devour the individual rights that provide the foundation for their additional schemes of redistribution or morals regulation, and is that not a reasonable request to ask of them? In contrast, libertarians do offer a solution, or two, to the problem of limiting government power to the protection of individual sovereignty. Like their classical liberal ancestors, most modern libertarians favor constitutionally limited government in which power is structurally divided among different branches of a federal or national government, and between the limited powers of the national government and the broader police powers of states and municipalities. In short, these libertarians favor something very much like, if not identical to, the original meaning of the Constitution of the United States. The whole Constitution, including the parts that protect the unenumerated rights retained by the people and the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Other libertarians, having observed the continued decline of respect for the Constitution's limits on state and federal power, favor a more radical alternative. They would see law enforcement and adjudication be handled competitively, rather than by monopolistic government agencies. They favor consumer choice and competition as the best check on the abuse of the powers of law enforcement. In contrast with advocates of social justice or legal moralism then, libertarians and their classical liberal forefathers have paid considerable attention to how government power can be limited to the protection of the rights defining individual sovereignty that the libertarians favor. However persuasive their responses to these problems may be, they cannot be accused of ignoring it or with treating it less with less than the seriousness that the problem deserves. Now in the end, there emerges a fundamental contrast between social justice and legal moralism on the one hand and libertarianism on the other. Advocates of social justice and legal moralism are concerned with ends, to the exclusion of any serious consideration of means. All persons should have X amount of stuff. All persons should act or refrain from acting in certain ways. In addition to the failure to reach anything close to consensus, even amongst themselves, on what these ends should be. What is principally lacking is any serious attention at all, A, to the means by which one's uh, favored end will be achieved, and B, how the coercive institutions will be limited to just those correct ends without being perverted to pursue other ends that are deemed by any particular social justice or legal moralist theorist to be both unjust and immoral. In contrast, libertarianism is concerned almost exclusively with means, rather than with ends. Even the fundamental rights of private property and freedom of contract that principally define liberty are conceived by libertarians as the means to the pursuit of happiness while living in society with others, rather than ends in themselves. To be sure, the protection of these rights is treated as the end of government, but that's only because government itself is perceived by many libertarians as a regrettably necessary means of protecting property and contract and by other libertarians as an unnecessary means. Of course, libertarians are seriously concerned with one end. We are concerned with one end, the end of living a good life, or what the Declaration referred to as the pursuit of happiness. It is this end that motivates their commitment to such means as private uh, private property, freedom of contract, and constitutionally limited government. But as I've already described, most libertarians believe that liberty is necessary precisely because the end of happiness will vary with the uniquely varying circumstances, goals, and aspirations of particular individuals. And because living the good life is, as my professor Henry Veach taught taught me, a do-it-yourself affair. Real world experience, they maintain, has demonstrated that governmental implementation of either social justice or legal moralism has led to dystopias almost beyond our ability to imagine. In contrast, even an imperfect commitment to individual rights and limited constitutional government as ours has been all too imperfect has led to the greatest prosperity in human history. Of course, none of this is easy to prove. If it were, libertarianism would have either vanquished its intellectual foes or have been defeated by them. But consider what may be the ultimate empirical proof of the superiority of even imperfectly adhering to liberal principles, and it is what I did in answer uh, to the question that I got during my first lecture. Which way do the refugees run? Which countries need to restrict the exit of their citizens? Were, pe- were people clamoring to get into or out of the USSR? Are they lined up to enter the mollocracy of Iran? Are, are they, To the extent that they can, people vote with their feet for the increased prosperity made possible by the more robust protection of property as compared with government systems. Persons who are capable of relocating tend to leave societies preoccupied by the pursuit of social justice or legal morality and beat a path to the door of societies who pursue some semblance of the libertarian way. As empirical proofs go, this one is probably as good as any other. Of course, given that there is no truly libertarian society, this is a comparative matter which societies protect the rights of property and contract better than others. But in the end, this too is why libertarianism is modest. Libertarians posit their models of complete liberty as a means of incrementally inching existing societies in a more libertarian direction, step by step. Libertarians believe that good things will happen as this progress is made. And if we ever reach a point where the protection of property rights is having a counterproductive effect, We can stop there. In the meantime, we have a long way to go before we reach that point, or so say libertarians, with all due modesty. Thanks. Randy Barnett is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work and learn more about Cato University at our website, cato.org.